Hello, I am Alec Avtikov, and welcome to the life and times of Frederick the Great. I'm sure you're all well aware of the deep tragedy that occurred in September. With the death of Queen Elizabeth II, I pray for the well-being of the United Kingdom and the new King Charles III. However, I'm glad you continue to listen to my podcast. I can't wait to see you all on Patreon. Remember that if you want to listen to my podcast episodes ad-free, then go to the link in the description to help contribute to this podcast of mine. If you choose to donate, then you will be mentioned in the next episode and the preceding episodes as long as you contribute. Remember, I want to do a service for you folks, so there is no pressure to join Patreon. The link to Patreon and all of the social media is in the show notes below. Also, do not forget to leave reviews and give me honest feedback from wherever you listen. I love hearing from you all, and thank you for your constant support. Also, this is very late, but make sure to check out the podcast Lafayette, We Are Here. There, you can listen to the interview that I did with the host about Frederick the Great and the Enlightenment. I had a great discussion with the host, Emmanuel Dubois. There's a link in the show notes below. Please check out his show. It's honestly great. Now, on to the recap of the last episode. In the last episode, the Glorious Revolution occurred, which swept James II of England out of power. William of Orange was his replacement. This revolution, a.k.a. coup, increased Parliament's power and decreased the monarchy's power. However, the Glorious Revolution also set off Louis XIV, and thus began the Nine Years' War between England and France. Ironically, the Nine Years' War was only one week away from being nine years exactly. Anyway, Britain and France would continue to class from 1688 all the way until 1815, with brief pauses to catch their breath. Truly, they were the best of enemies. Anyway, William of Orange became the King of England, Scotland, and Ireland, along with his wife Mary in 1689. William and Mary did not produce any children, so the crown would be passed to Mary's sister, Anne. Under Anne, Parliament would pass the Act of Union in 1707, which would unify the crowns of England and Scotland. This created the Kingdom of Great Britain, which is why I will be calling the nation there Britain, and the people from there, the British. The crown would then pass to George of Hanover, who became George I of Great Britain in 1714. This coincided with a general election in 1715, during which the Tories lost power and the Whigs gained power. To completely oversimplify British politics of the 1700s, the Whigs were in favor of decreasing the power of the monarchy, while the Tories were in favor of increasing the monarchy's political power. The Whigs pushed out basically all of the Tories from the places of power. Therefore, when word came of a rebellion in the fall of 1715, many Tories chose to side with the Jacobites. See, the Jacobites were in favor of the Stuart family being the monarchs of Britain, rather than the Hanoverian family. James II's son, James Edward Stuart, believed he could cross the channel and take Britain back. However, 
1715 Jacobite Rising failed, with the last battle occurring on English soil in this rebellion. Now that we are caught up, we must discuss the topic of today's episode. The man we are discussing, Sir Robert Walpole, is extremely important to British politics, even today. His actions will impact what the British do when Frederick invades Silesia in 1740. That is why we will be discussing his life up until 1739. We'll also discuss the outbreak of the War of Jenkins' Ear. Our story begins in 1676 in Houghton, England. On August 26th of that year, Robert Walpole was the fifth of 19 children. In the modern world, that number is difficult for me to fathom. Anyway, his father was also named Robert Walpole, and he was a member of the British aristocracy. Robert Walpole the Younger, the man we're going to be talking about today, went to school at King's College in Cambridge, and he believed he was destined to be a clergyman. Instead, when his father died in 1700, he inherited the wealth of the family. Robert Walpole then decided that he was going into politics two months after his father died. He was elected MP for Castle Rising in Norfolk. The next year, he would run for King's Lynn in 1702, and he would remain there as MP until 1742. Walpole was a, quote, violent Whig, an intelligent speaker and an effective administrator. Walpole was appointed to various significant positions early in his political career, such as member of the Admiralty Council of the Navy, Secretary at War, and the Treasurer of the Navy in 1710 through 1711. I believe that his speech in December of 1709 spells out his beliefs quite sufficiently. Robert said, quote, The doctrine of unlimited, unconditional passive obedience was first invented to support arbitrary and despotic power and was never promoted or countenanced by any government that had not designed some time or other of making use of it. So clearly, Robert's rhetoric was that he could not allow tyranny to come into power. As an American, that speech reminds me of the time farmers overthrew the greatest naval power of the time, but we can discuss the American Revolution when it's time to do so. Now we must transition from a successful revolution to a failed rebellion. That's right, we're talking about the 1715 Jacobite Uprising. When the general election of 1715 swept the Tories out of power, many Whigs, including Walpole, believed that the Tories were on the side of the Jacobites. Walpole even attacked the Tories in a speech he made in the House of Commons in February 1716, when the rebellion was on the decline. Robert Walpole was a firm Whig supporter until 1717. This year was crucial in British politics in that the Whig faction split into two groups. The government Whigs, which supported the foreign policy of King George I, and the opposition Whigs, which opposed the interventionist foreign policy of the king and worked with the Tories to go against the king. See, during that time, Britain was entering the Great Northern War on the side of Russia against the Swedes. Walpole, who led the opposition Whigs, was against the intervention on the continent. A brief reminder about the geography of Britain is that it is a series of islands off the coast of Europe. Due to that geography, it has the option to become more isolationist and not intervene in European politics, or more interventionist and become muddled in European affairs. 
This is because Britain is only 21 miles off the coast of the European continent. Britain is close enough that they are directly impacted by European politics, but far away enough that they do not have to focus on creating a standing army to fight on the continent. Due to King George I being an elector of Hanover, a state within the Holy Roman Empire, Britain became more involved in the politics on the continent. This was not what Walpole wanted. He wanted to develop Britain economically with the international trade that was making Britain extremely rich. What was one of the driving forces behind this wealth, you may ask? In 1713, Britain signed a treaty with Spain to trade slaves in the Caribbean. Therefore, slavery was one of the main economic drivers of political decisions in Britain. Walpole, however, knew that by working with the Tories, he would be collaborating with known Jacobites. However, it was mainly due to a lack to luck and political genius that Walpole was able to become the first Prime Minister of Britain. In 1720, the finances of Britain crashed hard, and it was mainly due to Whig involvement in the South Sea Company. Walpole, being an opposition Whig, was not associated with that scandal and soon worked with King George I to make himself the first Prime Minister of Britain in 1721. From 1724 through 1725, Walpole removed a few political enemies from the ministry, improved the finances of Britain, and made various alliances so that Britain could be at peace. The Jacobite threat was temporarily removed during his time as Prime Minister, and Britain could focus on enriching itself. Walpole was much like a cockroach in that there was nothing you could do to kill him politically. He was deft at political maneuvering. In 1727, King George I died, which made his son King George II. It was to be seen whether Walpole would remain as prime minister. However, despite personal differences, Walpole remained. A major political achievement in foreign policy was Britain's Treaty of Vienna in 1731. This was a defensive alliance where Britain would support Austria in a war if Austria would give up the Ostend East India Company to Britain. This essentially ended the Anglo-French alliance because Austria was the main continental enemy of France. Therefore, the alliance that helped keep the peace after the War of Spanish Succession fizzled away. However, Another event occurred in 1731 that would have international implications between Britain and Spain. Off the coast of Cuba, a Coast Guard officer of Spain got in a fight with Captain Robert Jenkins and cut off one of Jenkins's ears. This would have major implications in 1738, but we'll get to that. So, let's move right ahead to 1737 when a storm was brewing between a father and a son. But this isn't your normal domestic squabble. This was between King George II and his first son, Frederick, the Prince of Wales. The breaking point of the relationship between the King and the Prince of Wales was when the Prince of Wales lied to his father about when his wife was due to give birth. Frederick's wife was then rushed away to St. James's Palace, where King George and Queen Caroline could not attend the birth. 
See, the tradition was that the royal family was to watch the birth in order to make sure the baby wasn't supposititious. In other words, they wanted to make sure that the baby would be of royal, legitimate stock. After that incident, the relationship between George and Frederick broke down. Frederick left his father's court and brought Whigs that were in opposition to Walpole with him. This opposition notably included the famous writers of the day, as well as a man by the name of Lord Bolingbroke. Throughout the time Walpole was in power, Bolingbroke and the greatest English writers of the day hounded the corruption of Walpole. And they weren't terribly off either. In the Story of Civilization book series by Will and Ariel Darnett, they write that Walpole, quote, almost had no morals. Walpole was in power for so long in 1737 that he had accumulated many powerful enemies. The Whigs were getting older and less united. Corruption followed his premiership like bees to nectar, and the peace that was established after the War of Spanish Succession, the policy that Walpole prided himself on, was getting weaker by the year. The question everyone had on their lips was, when? would Walpole Hall. Let's focus on the so-called peace in Europe in the 1730s. In 1733, as we discussed in episode 19 on Prince Eugene of Savoy, the War of Polish Succession began. If you want to learn more about that war, listen to that episode. In short, France supported one possible king of Poland, while Austria and Russia supported another possible king of Poland. This war was limited in scale, and Britain was neutral. France seemed to be gaining the upper hand in the peace negotiations, and Spain benefited from this peace by gaining Italian territory from Austria in the process. Spain was, Maine's, was the British rival at sea. Therefore, tensions between Britain and Spain rose. The Caribbean was also a place of extreme political tensions. Spain had extremely rich sugar plantations that Britain was not allowed to trade with legally. This was, of course, during a time when trade was only meant to be between the colony and the mother country. This mercantilist system did not account for the human nature to want to be rich, and British smuggling was a huge thing in the Caribbean. Spain then began to constrict trade with Britain even further. Spain even began boarding and taking British ships, which rose tensions to a boiling point. Both the Spanish and British public were furious at the other kingdom. Spain wanted Gibraltar back from the British, while Britain wanted Spain to stop taking their ships. This, of course, brings us to the very infamous moment when Captain Robert Jenkins presented his severed ear to the Parliament and spoke about the absolute treachery of the Spanish. But behind the scenes, neither the Spanish nor the British Prime Ministers really wanted war. On December 31st, 1738, New Year's Eve, against most public opinion on, in both Spain and Britain, Walpole and the Spanish Chief Minister signed the Convention of Pardo. This was meant to solve the trade issues that caused such animosity. The British South Sea Company was to pay 68,000 pounds to Spain 
by May 25th, 1739, and Britain would also withdraw their ships that were deployed in the Mediterranean to protect Gibraltar. These terms were outrageous to the British public, and a form of early patriotism swept across England. This pressured members of Parliament, and, and the convention was passed by only 28 votes. In the British system of parliamentary government, a prime minister can only stay in power if they have a majority in the legislative body. Unlike in the United States, there is no such thing as a divided government in Britain. But even though a law may pass, the important bit is if the law will be enforced. In March of 1739, Britain was supposed to withdraw its fleet from the Mediterranean. Instead, Britain was all like, nah, screw that and chose to keep their ships in the Mediterranean to protect their holding on Gibraltar. What pissed Spain off even more was when the South Sea Company just refused to pay what they owed. Even now, with tensions with Spain as high as they can be without actually shooting at each other, Walpole was still against war. His second wife died back in 1738, his cabinet was increasingly against his anti-war position, and in 1739, Walpole was 62 years old. This was during a time when the life expectancy was 39 years old, so many thought Walpole had overstayed his welcome. Walpole believed that the war would disrupt trade, and there would be no clear guarantee of victory with a war against Spain. But the public was not having it. They really wanted war. Therefore, Walpole compromised with his cabinet, and Britain sent warships to the Caribbean. On June 8, 1739, orders were sent to warships in the Caribbean to start hostilities against Spain. The British ambassador in Spain was even ordered to stop negotiating with the Spanish. However, war had not yet been declared. Britain was not entirely ready to declare war yet because they wanted to know the intentions of the Dutch and the French. See, the Dutch had been allies with England since 1678. However, they were both intense rivals with each other regarding trade. The Dutch believed, rightly so, that if they were to join war against Spain, trade would dry up dramatically. They would remain neutral against Spain. The other key player was France, with Cardinal Fleury at the head of the foreign policy of France. If France joined Spain in the war, the results would be disastrous for Britain. However, France was exhausted from the War of Polish Succession, where they gained very little. Fleury also believed that Britain would not gain from attacking Spain, and would therefore not do it. France would thus remain neutral. There was a mobilization of both the Navy and the Army for the upcoming war, that continued throughout the summer and into the fall. In a time before the Industrial Revolution and instant communication, it took Britain a half a year to get all the resources ready for war. Then there was the question of whether to actually declare war on Spain. If Britain declared war, they would receive absolutely no help from the Dutch and might provoke France into siding with Spain. Based on all of these factors, Walpole was against a declaration of war. However, future Prime Minister, the Duke of Newcastle, wrote during this time, quote, 
I really think now we want a declaration of war to make the parliament and nation think we are sufficiently in earnest to justify the demand of more troops. His argument was that a declaration of war would unite Britain around the idea of defeating Spain. There was now a unified bloc with Walpole's cabinet that was pro-war. On Friday, October 19, 1739, the cabinet wrote and accepted a draft declaration of war on Spain. However, the orders to begin hostilities against Spain had already been ordered by the government of Britain. Therefore, the day before the government declared war on Spain, on October 22, 1739, the first shots of the War of Jenkins' Ear began with the British attack on Spanish held Portobello in what is today Panama. As I said, the British government would declare war the day after on October 23rd, 1739. Well, there you have it, the beginning of the War of Jenkins' Ear. The implications of this war will have an absolutely massive impact on the premiership of Walpole. For those of you who stayed to the end, I will not be producing an episode in November. I will be student teaching, so wish me luck. I will conclude today's episode in a little differently today by playing the famous song that was written for this conflict. Here is Rule Britannia.